Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about grateful to be home, but what's next when caregiver reality sets in is Dr. Emily Riley. Dr. Riley is the founder and CEO of Purposefully Home, located in Scottsdale, Arizona. She practices as an occupational therapist and provides functional living consultation to clients to improve the way the home space enhances the resident's lifestyle. Integrating skills as an occupational therapist and certified home modification professional, Dr. Riley has helped create solutions to enhance the way families maintain their daily roles, routines, and interests. Many people wish to remain in their home for as long as possible, and that is the goal for each client served. Purposefully Home is a boutique consulting agency providing education, advocacy, and limitless potential to each client, caregiver, and community served. How are you doing today, Dr. Riley? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Well, thank you for being here today. I'm looking forward. So, um, grateful to be home, but what's next when caregiver reality sets in? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here too and grateful. So, a lot of times um, when we end up at the hospital or an unexpected event happens, we get really um, involved in trying to figure out what's going on. So, then our goal becomes we just want to return home. So a lot of times we get inundated with all this information and we're really eager to get our loved one home. And there are certainly a few steps that get overlooked and I hope that this you know presentation today will give people some things to think about and consider either if they're just newly in the caregiver role or you know find themselves down in the future in the caregiver role. So who am I? I'm an occupational therapist. I have my doctorate in health science and an executive certificate in home modification. And I've always been a natural empath. I've been known as Sweet Emily since I was a little kid. And so advocating for and empowering people is really what my passion is. I want people to be able to live their best life engaged with their family, friends, and community. And that's why I founded Purposefully Home. So we are based out of Scottsdale, Arizona, so primarily that's where my audience and my clients are, um, but we are able to have a little bit of reach thanks to Knowledgeable Aging um, to be able to provide some of those supports. So today we have a lot to cover and we want to be mindful of our time. So what I want the audience to be able to understand is gain a knowledge to improve how to care for a loved one at home. Identify three strategies to set boundaries. Boundaries don't have to be a bad thing. And understand how the home environment impacts success. So we are natural reactive to the environment we're surrounded. We talk about it when we're raising kids, pets, animals. We see what they do and we automatically say it's because of their environment. And that's the same thing as caregiver, you know, with caregivers. Um, explain ways to advocate for yourself and your loved one. And describe some different methods to create and manage your care team. So the role of caregiver can happen to anyone. It really doesn't discriminate. You can be a child. You can be the volunteer coordinator at your local community organization. You can be a high-level CEO. Um, it doesn't matter. Parent, neighbor, friend, soccer player, whatever it is, we have a whole lot of different roles. And becoming a caregiver doesn't discriminate. So 
if at any time throughout your life, at one time or another, you're going to find yourself in that position. So we often go into the role of caregiving because we know it's the right thing to do. We just have this natural pull to help our loved one, whether it's a spouse, a neighbor, a parent, a child, and whether we think it's going to be a temporary or a permanent long-term long role, um, we eagerly jump into that because we want to help them out. But there are a lot of challenges to caregiving. And a lot of these challenges we don't really face right away. Um, of course, there's kind of that learning curve in the beginning where we're trying to juggle and learn these new roles and how do we take care of the person medically, um, how do we keep them safe physically, how do we juggle the, our other responsibilities and roles, and how do we kind of put it all together so that it's streamlined for, for everyone involved. But it really does take time. And that's what I hope for today, that people that aren't quite in this caregiving role or even if they are, you can kind of reevaluate what it is you're doing, what's working and what's not, because it really does take a toll on your time. And it's important to kind of assess, you know, what you can kind of make some of those adjustments for, because it needs 100% of your attention. You want to keep that care recipient safe. You want to keep them engaged. That's why you fought to bring them home where they would be comfortable and with their family and friends. And by doing that, it takes a lot of time making phone calls, planning medical appointments, getting out in the community. Of course, when we're not in these stay-at-home orders, now it's an even more of a stress because we want to make sure that if they are vulnerable, that we're keeping them healthy and really monitoring who's coming and going. So not only is your attention directly on them, it's kind of weaving your own responsibilities and your attention to care for yourself and maybe your, your friends and family that you either all live in the same place or you're leaving them to be able to go care for this person. And you, want, you often focus on others more than yourself. That's that natural empath <laughs> that I experience. And often a lot of caregivers have that too because they really want the best for them and they really feel pulled and drawn and guided to be able to care for that person. But that tends to leave the caregiver's health, you know, any health concerns or medical conditions on the back burner. And overall self-care, we hear about that so much. And I know a lot of caregivers are overhearing, oh, you got to take care of yourself because reality is there there's no time <laughs> mm -hmm. to be able to take care of yourself. Um, so what does that mean and what does that look like when maybe there are a lot of other factors? It's not just you're the individual with one role as caregiver and you're caring for this person with one issue. They often have a whole lot of other factors contributing to that. And so ultimately, when you put all of these different things together, it strains the relationships. There's a lot of different dynamics, and it can put a relationship on you as the caregiver and your care recipient, because maybe it is a child-adult role, or maybe it's a child-parent role. Um, spouse, you know, it puts a different relationship on a spouse. Um, and then, you know, your own relationships, your friendships, your work relationships, your colleagues, your, your own family. 
um, it can really put a lot of strain on that because the expectations are shifted. And when people take on this role, there's no time for conversation. What is this going to look like? How is this going to impact our family? And so for those that are not in a caregiver role right now or maybe have a little bit more control over their role, um, maybe they're only stopping at a loved one's home once or twice a week, but they're still able to maintain their own life separately, um, that's a really great time to kind of put some of these practices and have some of these conversations so that when that time comes that it requires more time and attention, everybody is at least aware of being on the same page. Um, it certainly is challenging to get people on the same page for anything, so let alone caregiving. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> So this kind of leads into creating those roles and expectations. And what I really find to be a really good practice for the clients that I'm working with and, you know, encourage people kind of in the, that acute setting when they are facing, you know, what do I do with my loved one? Do I, what's the best thing for them? Do they go to a rehab center or long-term care? I really want, I know they want to come home and I really want to do that for them, but is that really what's best? And if you are really comfortable and confident in what your own roles and expectations are, it can help make the decision a little bit easier. Initially, it's going to be uncomfortable. You want to know that you made the right decision. But if you're thinking about the quality of life, not only for you and your family, but for that care recipient, you want to think about what your values are, you know, what, what is important. And this is going to vary depending on the initial family dynamics or cultural dynamics. Um, there are families that are strained, uh, you know, divorce, divorced, separated, um, haven't talked, spoken to each other in years that happen to become the only people they have. And so they're forced or they feel forced to kind of come back together in this caregiver partnership. And so you really want to kind of have some of those, those own concepts of what you're comfortable doing. So if you create a written agreement, and this agreement can be with yourself, um, just something where you identify what is important, your lifestyle, do you travel a lot, do you enjoy cooking, do you love, you know, to volunteer and you're on the board of this and the board of that and, you know, out and about and not really spending a lot of time at home. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have small children? Whatever your, your role is, do you have a a job that you love and you worked so hard to make that your career and are you willing to give that up are you willing to stay at home to care for this individual are you willing to you know wear down your your tire your your tires or your car um, driving all around for for medical appointments and I mean some of it can seem superficial to to think about but it's reality and these are the things that people don't often think about um, when they're doing it so those are some of those kind of basic day-to-day -day things, but really writing what you're comfortable doing. You know, what's that relationship look like, and can you put yourself in this very high vulnerable and personal personal um, space? And then identifying the length of time. What are you comfortable um, doing and for how long? So a lot of times people find this when they're helping out a neighbor or a friend. Um, maybe there's an elderly neighbor in your community that you don't mind stopping every day to drop off dinner or stopping when you go to the grocery store to to drop off some groceries. 
But over time, you, re you recognize that they do have family that just don't come by. They do have relatives outside, out of town that maybe send money or that you communicate with, but you're starting to get resentful because why are you the one doing this when they have family? So if you're able to identify some of these things, roles and expectations of what you're comfortable doing, um, yes, you feel it's a good thing to do as a person, but over time, are you going to be resentful? Um, so whether you're comfortable doing it for six months, you don't mind, or a year, but being able to always have that plan B, kind of um, a lot of times that's what they say, like when you build a business, a lot, you have that exit strategy, you know, what's your ultimate goal, and the goal, you know, maybe is to sell, and that's kind of the similar concept that you want to think of as, as a caregiver. There has to be a plan B. Um, and then what are the roles and duties? Are you comfortable just running errands? Are you comfortable with financial support? Are you comfortable with the more personal stuff where you're doing their laundry, maybe bathing them, doing hygiene, um, peri care, and if they have any kind of respiratory issues where you're doing maybe trach care or helping with secretions and, you know, spit and sputum and mucus. And, you know, maybe some people are cringing, but that's reality. So if you're taking on this caregiver role, it's not always just, you know, washing dishes and, and feeding them tea. <laughs> so true. It can, really, so it can really progress. And so while you're in that acute phase and receiving that support and guidance from the medical team and social services and your loved one is saying, just get me home, and you get them home, well, what is that really going to look like? Which is kind of that understanding what reality is versus your expectations. So a lot of those considerations is what's going to help you to set boundaries. So like I said, setting boundaries isn't a negative thing. People, you want to advocate for yourself. I know I wasn't going to share a lot of stories, but just the other day, I wanted a salad from a restaurant to take out, and my boyfriend called to answer or to order, and the salad that I wanted, they, did, they said they didn't have. They said it wasn't on the menu, but he said, well, we're looking at your menu, and it is. And I was like, it's okay, I'll just get this other salad. And he's like, no, if that's the salad you want and it's on the menu, what ingredients don't you have? Like, just replace, you know, replace it. And so the person, he said it very respectfully, went and asked the kitchen. They had all the ingredients. So she came back and I was able to get the salad that I wanted. But where I was willing to kind of, in a, you know, simple, very simplistic way, I was kind of able to be like, oh, well, I want this, but I'll accept this. He was like, no, here's the expectation, and he set a boundary. And it was very respectful. He wasn't being, you know, rude or anything. He was just asking a question. And that simple question was a matter of getting what I wanted opposed to compromising and getting something I didn't. And that's what setting a boundary is. It's kind of holding true to what your values are. And a lot of times that can go lost in that caregiver role. So that's why it's important to be mindful of your time, be mindful of your money, your mental health, your physical health, your fuel, not just your body's energy, but your car fuel. So, <laughs> <laughs> and your space, um, whether you're coming into your care recipient space or having them come into yours. Uh, whether it's overnight, 24-7, or just a few hours a week or a few hours a day, 
all of these things add up. And, you know, maybe for the first few months it's okay. But think about caregiving for ten, five years, 10 years, 20 years um, doing this mundane, root, you know, routine, monotonous role. If you don't set boundaries, you're going to certainly fall into what most caregivers fall into, and that's resentment, depression, isolation, and a lot of other health conditions or complexities. So that's why boundaries are so important. And now you've done the, the work, the mindfulness. You've set up your, um, you know, your personal values, your personal goals, your personal expectations. You've had these discussions with the surrounding people that are involved. Um, your friends, your family, the other people involved in their care, which, of course, includes the, the medical team, the social services, the follow-up care, um, any medical equipment. And you've, you've set that in place, and you know that this is the right decision for you. You have an exit strategy, um, whether that means paying somebody a few hours a week to come in and give you a respite, whether that means replacing you with a 24-7 caregiver whether that means putting into long-term care. But now you've decided that the home is exactly where this person needs to be. It's going to be the right decision. And so you want to prepare it so that it's functional. Because ultimately, why are you advocating so hard to bring your loved one home? You want them to be engaged with you. You want them to be participating in family events. You want them to have them maintain that relationship with you and their other friends and relatives. You want them to be able to have a quality of life where they're participating in activities that they enjoy. You don't want them in a place where they're sharing maybe a cubicle where they're only able to engage with strangers and sit and watch TV, whether they're sitting in a chair or lying in bed. And so if that's what you're really advocating for, then you want to create a home environment that's going to be conducive to that engagement. So you want to clear the clutter because you don't want them to be stuck in the bedroom, in the living room, in a chair. Of course, there's going to be some circumstances in which that's the only choice. But you still want to clear the clutter because it's going to allow you as the caregiver to move around the space much more easily. So picking up items where you could slip, trip, or fall. Um, and also the paperwork clutter. You know, it's easy when we're doing laundry to just toss it on the couch and think, oh, we'll fold it later. Um, the paperwork where if I showed you my desk right now, you'd be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and so then when you're, you know, in a rush and you're trying to go to the doctor's appointment that took you, you know, three months to get, and you can't find that one piece of paper from the last appointment that you need in the list of prescriptions, now you're trying to you know, get up three hours early to get your loved one ready and find all this information, it's, it's cluttered. It, you can't find it. You can't function that type of space. So being able to have systems and processes that allow you to easily maneuver throughout the space, but easily allow somebody else to come in and help you. So if, say, you got a phone call this afternoon that said, hey, I'm going to let you go. I want you to have the night off. Do whatever you want to do. I'll take over no problem. Well, you don't want to take the next four hours planning and organizing all this stuff so that that person can let you have a night off because now it's already tomorrow. So it, having kind of those systems in place where you can have that binder, have that app and say, here you go, see you tomorrow. And then creating a space with that natural light. 
you know, we want to keep our body functions and processes as best they can, as natural as they can. Um, and so the natural light will help kind of our circadian rhythms, our sleep-wake cycles, our behavior, our overall happiness. So being placing chair by the window, if you can place the bed um, by the window where you can kind of manage the curtains. And of course, for our mobile friends and care recipients, being able to get them outside um, because that's what's really, you know, going to help kind of maintain that, that good vitamin D, that good sunshine, and some of those good natural processes that our body has to go through. And then promoting safety. So thinking about locking the, the closets and the cabinets, maybe if you have to lock the refrigerator, um, you know, beyond the grab bars in the bathroom, we know the bathroom has to be a safe place. <laughs> we know that, you know, we want to have doors that lock to prevent, you know, anybody exiting unexpectedly or unintentionally. But if you can promote a whole home environment that's functional and safe, then that can allow, that could be the difference of you setting them up to brush their teeth and leaving the room and the space to go do something else while they're getting themselves in that, you know, in that particular task, able to do it on their own or with maybe distant supervision. Um, but if you don't have, if you only have certain pockets of space that are considered safe, then that's going to put that extra burden on, on you. And it's really going to limit their ability to engage in that space as well. And then, of course, function and ambiance. So there are so many different strategies to create a functional and safe space that still maintains the aesthetic and ambiance of your home. But it doesn't have to always look very industrial and institutional, which is really something that people fear. And maybe initially when you're transitioning, you have the bedside commode and the, you know, the shower chair and the hospital bed and different equipment um, kind of taking up space. But over time, there are ways to kind of set up the environment to be a little bit back to normal. So you're not really embarrassed when visitors are coming and going. This is just a good reflection that all the different phases of caregiving, it really does take a toll on your emotional well-being. And it can be really difficult and often overlooked. So for those children that are mis considered misbehaving in school, um, for the teens that are really kind of um, being disrespectful and kind of fighting back and uh, being defiant, um, for the, the tired and cranky old lady, <laughs> they're dealing with a lot of things at home. And you are, as a care caregiver are too. And people don't really recognize that. So um, the number of family caregivers across the U.S. is huge, and so many don't really share what, what they're doing and what they're experiencing. And if you're not a caregiver, you don't understand all the details. It's, it's just a constant on-the-job on the <laughs> role, and you don't get a break. So tips to become a better caregiver. And these tips can certainly even go to being a better human. So if you're not in that role of caregiver, um, you can certainly do these different strategies and tips to practice because it will allow you to communicate better. It'll allow you to maybe take an opportunity to understand a different perspective a little more easily. And it'll allow you to even grow your own personal development too. It can be a really difficult skill and a difficult task to be a caregiver. So you want to listen more than you speak. 
we all have a lot to say. We all have a lot of opinions, and we all have those expectations of what another person should say, how they should act, and what they should do. But when we are transitioning home from that hospital setting, that is that prime time to set those expectations and set those boundaries because that's going to kind of put the future forward. And if you're able to communicate easily in the beginning, then you kind of have that precedence as time progresses and that person either becomes a little bit less aware um, if you're experiencing a care recipient that has dementia, Parkinson's, um, kind of those neurological progressive um, illnesses that affect their, their cognitive function and their physical function, you want to be able to understand how to communicate a little bit differently. So really observing body language. We say a lot with what we're doing more than what our words are saying. So being able to kind of help identify some of those different triggers. Um, and meeting them where they're at. This is especially true for a lot of those cognitive and neurodiverse um, populations, but it can be physical too. Pain and injury and trauma can really impact our overall well-being. And so even if we're experiencing um, depression and coping with this new, you know, new reality, whether it's an amputation or a spinal cord injury, um, you know, or illness, even people that are early stage dementia may find that they're a little more snappy and a little more sharp, but it's just the different ways that we're coping. So if you are aware of this and can just meet them where they're at, as long as they're not harming you or themselves or anybody around you, who cares if they say that the shirt they're wearing, you gave them was green and it's really blue? Like, who cares? Why get in a fight about that? Who cares if they say you owe them $400 and you don't? <laughs> you know, find a way to divert their attention and find a way to kind of just meet them where they're at. And, you know, not that you're admitting that you're wrong or an error. Certainly, certainly there are circumstances where, you know, it is appropriate to be like, no, that, that's not accurate. But overall, if you can kind of be a little more sensitive to where they're at and how they're coping, it can allow that relationship and that communication to be more effective. And then listen to their words fully. So what we say isn't always what we mean. And I'm sure there's a lot of examples plenty of us with no injury or illness can admit to or think on. Um, and so it's really important as a caregiver to be able to recognize, um, you know, by observing and kind of looking at the situation compared to what they're saying and try to get a better understanding of what it is they're actually mean by, by that. And really try not to take offense. And don't be afraid to show vulnerability. We all love to be a hero. Uh, we want to be that, that important one that, you know, whether we've always felt never good enough and here's our chance to really shine, um, it's really, you know, important to many of us to, to feel like that we can fulfill that role as the caregiver. But at the end of the day, it really does impact the relationships and it re really impacts the well-being. So it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask for help. Um, you don't have to do it all. And being taking time to feel bad, feel resentful, feel sorry for yourself is okay on occasion as long as it doesn't consume you. And over time, being a caregiver, it, it can take over and it can consume you if you don't have the 
a good support system and a good foundation set up. And as I mentioned, seeking people that are like-minded and seeking people that are in that similar situation so you know you're not alone can make a big difference because going to a friend or family member who's not in that position and when they say, oh, it's okay, you're like, no, it's not okay, but they don't understand. So some of those kind of superficial comments are easy for them to try to reassure you, but you know your reality. So kind of aiming for those different resources and having the, the confidence to delegate when you can. And it's okay because you're not letting your loved one down by doing that. And not to make assumptions. When we take on the role of caregiver, we often have those expectations that the, the financially well-off sibling or friend or relative is going to just automatically take on those house payments or take on those medical bills or take on those things because that's our expert expectation. We can't do it, and so it's probably okay for them to do it. The neighbor or the friend or the relative, the closest sibling, is going to be the one to take on that transportation because, well, they live the closest. It makes the most sense. And those are our assumptions, and those are our expectations. So unless in that very beginning stage when you're taking on this new um, transition of bringing the loved one home, even if everyone's involved in that initial decision-making, that's why it's important to have this written down and kind of have these conversations about what is your expectation, what is your role going to be, because I'm going to take on this direct role, but I'm really hoping to have this support in this way. And if you can kind of verbalize that, it doesn't always mean it's going to happen, but at least you've set those expectations and you kind of clear the air of any assumptions. Um, so communication is key. Details matter. It's uncomfortable to talk about money. It's uncomfortable to talk about kind of those hard things. It's uncomfortable to talk about death. Um, but when we're taking on the role of caregiver, all of those things come up, and they come up just about every single day in one way or another. So it's really important to, to have these conversations. And if you're not really sure how to do it, utilizing those resources in the community to, to better advocate and allow you to feel more empowered to do so. Being an empowered caregiver is so important, and it's hard. Um, people that take on the caregiver role often are self-advocates and personal advocates and, and are empowered in some ways but it's not always easy and it's not always natural. Um, sometimes people are placed in this role and, you know, have no idea what they're doing and they're really relying on the information of others. But you want to be empathetic, empathetic to the situation for yourself and for your care recipient, um, kind of being mindful of what their needs are and what your own needs are. And knowing that this is a transition in in kind of that role in relationship. It's going to look quite a bit different. Um, so those behaviors, those outbursts, those rude comments, yes, we don't have to take, take on that abuse, but there is kind of a difference between what's abusive and what's just kind of that natural um, coping transition. You know, we have that kind of those different levels of grief, and that's kind of what this role, when we're taking on that role of caregiver and being a care recipient, can have and can play. So being really empathetic to the situation and giving yourself grace and giving those around you and that care recipient grace. 
and of course dignified. You want to ultimately make sure that all of your decisions and reactions and choices are allowing that person to live a dignified, high quality of life to the best of their ability. Certainly a lot of things have changed and they're not able to participate in life they, the way they used to, but the whole purpose, if you really think about your why, why did you bring this person home, um, you know, you want them to have a dignified life because you didn't want them to be in that little shared space, private room with a stranger. You didn't want them to be eating dinner in a bed, you know, in a corner forgotten by the staff. You wanted so much more for them. So making sure that even on the hard days, you're still making those really dignified decisions, um, being mindful of the skin integrity, being mindful that this is a human and they used to be a very hardworking individual, maybe, um, you know, and if you do have those challenging relationships where you find yourself in a position being a caregiver to somebody who maybe wasn't a hard worker, maybe didn't treat you well, um, maybe, you know, was estranged for all this time, if you made the choice to accept that role as a caregiver, then it's still your responsibility to collaborate and partner with them and with others around you to give them that, that quality of life. And ultimately, that self-awareness. So really identifying in the beginning, like I said, what your values are and your quality of life and your lifestyle. Um, and know what your limits are. Um, you know, some people that take on caregiver are, are okay with the occasional three times a week dropping by to check in, maybe cooking some meals in advance. But they know, I don't want to touch bathing. I don't want to touch toileting. I don't want to touch any kind of like personal gross care. Um, that's self-awareness, and it's okay that people are uncomfortable with that. Not everybody is, and it's better to have somebody aware that what they're uncomfortable with than take on something that they're not comfortable with, putting the care recipient and themselves at risk. So really finding those different resources and communicating about that. And by doing all of this, you want to have that caregiver toolbox. So there are a lot of different resources. There are a lot of different apps to help kind of coordinate care. Um, but being able to delegate, one of the things that I heard recently from a caregiver was how important and invaluable some of these um, tools <coughs> as when when they're not able to offer care in some way, initially you transition home, you have home health, you have social services, you have the meal train, the visitors, everybody's around the house, there's so many people, it's so wonderful. Well, after a few months, after a few weeks, after a few months, it just slowly downslides and you have less and less people, less and less support. And people kind of forget that you're still experiencing this role because they've moved on with their lives. and. Um, as a caregiver, it can you can move on with certain aspects of your life, but you've taken on this role. And so having that toolbox where you have those systems and processes, so that way when people are asking like, oh, how can I help? You don't feel like you can't delegate. You have maybe some of that information shareable where they can access and, you know, say that person, you know you need to make that phone call to the cardiologist, but every time you call, um, they have to call you back and you always miss that return call or you sit on hold for 40 minutes 
and you can't ever get through because your care recipient needs you, and so you have to hang up and go take care of them. So if you have the ability to, the next time somebody says, oh, what can I do to help? Well, maybe they can't come over physically and actually literally help you like that, but you can say, oh, log on to Trello, log on to Slack, log on to, you know, whatever you're using as your care, you know, information to track medications and doctors and some of that basic information, emergency contacts. Don't have all your financial accounts in there. <laughs> that way you can easily pass the, the information to log on and say, hey, next month is August after the 15th. He needs an appointment with the cardiologist. And they can log on to the app, look for cardiologist, find the phone number, have the date of birth and the information to make the appointment. And now you've delegated that. And you didn't have to spend time looking for the information. Because, of course, those follow-up questions are, well, who's the cardiologist? When's the date of birth? What's the insurance? So if you have all that information, now you've just saved yourself 20, 30 minutes, maybe even a couple of hours trying to organize all of that in your day. Um, so, so thinking about the toolbox to delegate and seek assistance beyond what's, um, what's in your surrounding environment. Um, and then, of course, your self-care, taking that time for mindfulness, taking time for rest, um, finding ways to do that when it's not always a reality to go to the spa. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Riley, you Given us a lot to think about, a lot of really good information there. How can people find you? So I'm over social media, um, Facebook. You can look Emily Riley, um, Purposefully Home. And you can look on Instagram, follow me at Purposefully Home. And then, of course, PurposefullyHome.com. That way you can send a message. You can see what other services we have. Um, and I'm always behind the email, so emily at purposefullyhome.com if you have any questions about today's presentation or if you wanted any of the resources, um, some of the information that I referred to. I have some um, kind of PDF versions, so if you wanted some information on the toolbox or some other tips, I'd be happy to share. And your phone number? 480-339-9316. Well, thank you again, Dr. Riley. Uh, Till next time, I am your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging. Bye.